Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Welcome to Baldhead Bible Podcast, making the Bible come to life, featuring the expositive story preaching of Dr. John Katzian. Hey, Baldhead Bible Nation. I just want to say welcome back to the series on the Judges. We've come up to Judges chapter 6 in the character named Gideon. Now, I covered Gideon in an earlier podcast back in season 1. So for the next four weeks, I'm going to be reposting that series on Gideon. It flows great into the story of the Judges. If you haven't heard that earlier series, welcome. You're about to hear it. If you have heard it before, I hope it refreshes your memory on the faith that Gideon demonstrated in the face of overwhelming odds and how that faith can be a catalyst for change in our lives in this day, and I hope you enjoy the next four weeks. The man looked to the left. He looked to the right. There was nobody here. Right. He grabbed the stalks of wheat in his hands, and then he jumped down into the wine press. That wasn't a big jump, you know, maybe three feet. Imagine a kiddie pool, you know, that's about as high as it was. It might have come up to your knees. So again, it wasn't a big jump. But imagine a 10-foot wide kiddie pool. This guy looks around, and he takes the stalks of wheat, and he raises it above his head, and bam! He hits it against the bottom of the wine press and then bam he hits it again and bam he hits it against the rock of the wine press and the kernels of wheat begin to separate from the stalks and he looks around did anybody hear me did anybody hear me and maybe he goes to grab some more see what he's doing is called threshing wheat and he takes the wheat again above his head then bam he hits it against the ground and bam he hits it again I hope nobody hears me doing this. He's threshing wheat here, but he needs the wheat. He's separating the kernel from the stalks. They need those kernels to make bread, to make flour, to make bread, to eat. And the thing is, he's threshing wheat in a wine press. I mean, who threshes wheat in a wine press? See, a wine press is, as it says, a place where you press grapes to make wine. So what a wine press is for is you take a whole bunch of grapes and put them in that kiddie pool size space in the ground. You then invite all your friends over and you begin to step and scrunch all over the grapes. And then the grapes get pressed, right? A wine press. They get pressed down and then the grapes juice then flows out into other vats. And you make grape juice, you make wine. And that's what a wine press 
passes four threshing wheat should be done on a threshing floor, which is usually up on a hill of some kind. And it's usually this big area where you lay down the wheat and you hit it yourself, maybe physically hitting it against the ground, or you get these um, stalk things that you hold in your hand and you hit that against the wheat, or some maybe you pull ox and they, they pull this round thing that's got some metal things in it that begin to pull a, around the wheat and drag it back and forth to separate the wheat from the kernels and then you're up on a hill so the wind begins to blow to help to separate the wheat from the chaff you need a big area not this little wine press this guy looks around he pokes his head around nobody can see me so far so he begins grabs another stalk of wheat he raises it above his head and oh he hears a creak he runs down to a corner of the wine press and he hides and oh I hope nobody sees me sees me pokes his head up nothing Whew, nothing's happening he pokes his head over the edge of the wine press and he looks and he's scared to death petrified what if the midianites find me what if the Midianites find me? Have you ever been so scared you don't know if, you know, you're afraid to move? Sometimes when you watch a scary movie or, or whenever I'm on a roller coaster, I am scared. But how about, like, just say the everyday fears of life? Some of you struggle with fearfulness, being afraid. Some people struggle with fear so much they can't get out of bed or they have to take medication to deal with their fears and their stress. And Maybe you're not that bad. You just have general anxiety. You're anxious all the time. And then you read in Scripture where the Bible says, Be anxious for nothing. Don't be anxious for anything, but you think I'm anxious all the time. What's going to happen to me? Will I stay safe? Will I get cancer? Will I get sick? Will I have enough money to pay the bills? What's going to happen to my parents? They seem arguing a lot. Are they going to get divorced? Hey, we're moving. I've got to go to a new school. What's going to happen there? Will I find the love of my life? Will I ever get married? Will I ever be satisfied in this job? Ugh, and you can be anxious. What's happening to our world and politics and... Sometimes in the middle of that anxiety, you wonder, can God use me? Can God ever use me in the middle of this fear? Well, I want to encourage you. Yes, he can. And if you turn to Judges chapter 6, we are going to see the story of a man that God uses even as he is woefully afraid, fearfully afraid. This man is scared a lot of the time. But God uses him mightily. So I just want to encourage you. You may think I'm too full of fear for God to use me. No, you're not. And you can look at the story of Gideon to see how God uses us despite our fears to accomplish great things. Well, Gideon pops his head up. I don't see any Midianites. I think I'm okay, and he maybe goes to get more weed, and he begins to, bam, hit it against the ground, bam, and he begins to try to thresh as best as he can in the middle of the small wine press. He should be doing it up on a huge threshing floor, and 
Why is Gideon threshing wheat in the middle of a wine press rather than where it should be? Well, it's because Gideon's trying to hide from the Midianites. And the Midianites, they hate the people of Israel. And the Midianites are a nomadic tribe who, in fact, are related to the Israelites. Both the Midianites and the Israelites can trace their lineage all the way back to Abraham. Now, Abraham and Sarah produced Isaac, which came out from Isaac, came the, the nation of Israel. Well, Abraham had another wife named Keturah. And out of Keturah and Abraham, he produced a son who eventually they had the tribe of the Midianites. The Midianites traced their lineage all the way back to Abraham and Keturah. Well, Numbers chapter 25, when Moses was coming out of Egypt, the Midianites, they were a thorn in the side of the Israelite people. In fact, they encouraged the Israelite people to worship another god. They encouraged the Israelite people to pursue Baal and the worship of Baal. And God says, Moses, you've got to wipe them out. And so in Numbers chapter 25, verse 16 Moses gets busy trying to wipe out the Midianite people. Well, he doesn't wipe them out totally. And in fact, when we come to Judges chapter 6, we instead meet a people. It says in Judges chapter 6, we meet a people who could not be counted. That's how many they were. The Midianite people would come in and they wouldn't stay in Israel. They would leave, but they would come in seasonally. It was called a seasonal invasion. But guess what? The Midianite people would invade just when the Israelite people were harvesting their crops. And it says there in Judges chapter 6, verse 5, they would come up with their livestock and their tents. They would come in like locusts in number. That's how many it felt. And locusts are this winged bug that comes in and zzz, it eats crops. It devours everything before it. It's a plague. Well, that's the way the Midianites felt to the Israelite people. They were a plague because they would just come in and like locusts, as it says, with both they and their camels, so much numbers that they could not be counted. They laid waste to the land as they came in. So they would take all the harvest. They would probably burn what was left. They'd take the camels and the cows and the goats and whatever cattle they'd have, and then they'd leave. And they did this year after year. Well, guess what? If you can't harvest your grain, you can't make flour. If you can't make flour, you can't make bread. If you can't make bread, you can't eat. And if they come in all the time and take your cattle, your prized possession, they might take the rest of the crops like grapes so they couldn't drink. They would come in and they would take everything and year after year to the point where the Israelite people were beginning to starve. And at that point, Judges chapter 6, says that the Israelite people were brought so low because of this annual invasion by the Midianites who hate the Jewish people. But this annual invasion brought the people so low, it says in verse 6, that they began to cry out to the Lord. 
In the middle of their despair, the seasonal invasion brought them so low, the only place they had to turn to was God. Now you're probably thinking like me, what? Israel is God's chosen people. They should be following God all the time. What's the problem here? I mean, aren't they following God? And the answer is no. We're in the book of Judges, all right? Now, the book before it is called Joshua. And in the book of Joshua, of course, the main character is Joshua. And he leads the people of Israel back to the promised land. They came out of Egypt under Moses. Moses wasn't allowed to enter the promised land. But here comes Joshua and the people of Israel. And Moses and God say, hey, you've got to take back the land. Push all those other tribes out that have occupied it. Push out the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, all these other ites. Push them out as far as you can because this is our land and don't let them live. Basically, kill them all. Get rid of them. Don't let any of those other tribes live among you, Israel. And so here comes Joshua leading his people. Yay! And they push them out. And they get all the people of the other tribes out of the promised land. And it's only there for Israel. Well, sort of. They sort of did it. They got rid of most of them. They got rid of most of the other tribes. But they didn't wipe them out completely. Instead, they let some of those other tribes live amongst them. And they began to look at some of the other tribes' gods and the way they worshipped them. And they thought, huh, they worship a god named Baal. They worship another god named Asherah. Huh, the way they worship their god seems like a lot more fun than the way we Jewish people worship Yahweh. Hmm. And I wonder if, you know, that thought began to stick in, in an Israelite's head. But as long as Joshua lived, and as long as that generation lived, they followed Yahweh. But sadly, at the end of Joshua, as Joshua dies, he comes to the people and he says, Hey, Joshua 24, verse 15, he says, Listen, Israelite people, choose you this day whom you will serve. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. But you've got to choose. And as long as Joshua and his generation lived, they chose to follow the Lord. But then they passed away. And we come to the book of Judges. And here we see years later, the people of Israel, they'd forgotten Maybe deliberately, maybe not, but they'd forgotten all about all the wonders of what God had done for them. They'd forgotten what it meant to follow God. They'd forgotten the Ten Commandments and the whole Old Testament law. See, once Joshua died, they began to deliberately push those things away, and they began instead to listen to their neighbor. Their neighbor worshipped Baal or Asherah. They... they they basically worship the Canaanite religion of some kind. And what you see in the book of Judges is that the Canaanite religion is so enticing. And my question is, what was so enticing about it that this generation would forget about Joshua, forget about Moses, and forget about everything that was done, and forget about God? What was so enticing about this religion? Well, 
One way was more enticing is that the way they worship their gods, whoa, it looked like a lot more fun than the way we worship Yahweh. Their worship often involved, you know, excessive drinking and excessive fleshly activities. They would often have, you know, prostitutes who were tied to a temple and, and you were encouraged to indulge the flesh as you worship Baal. Yes, this is something you should do. And whoa, maybe to the average Israelite, it looked like a lot more fun than going over here to the temple. And I don't even know if I can find the Torah. Did, it, did anybody keep it? And should we read it? And if you stop reading it and you stop following it, man, they have a lot of fun. And the music and the activities they do is so much cooler. I think they were enticed away because worshiping Baal and Asherah was just fleshly, lustfully, a lot more fun. But the second reason, I think, is because they say at this time, that the Canaanite culture was way more advanced than the Jewish culture. And when, so when the Canaanites built a building, whoa, it looks cool. Look at all the cool stuff they had. And then maybe when they painted a picture, you know, they looked at that and they're like, wow, look at the beautiful way that picture works way cooler than our paintings. And their houses are way cooler and... Again, when Israelite Joe starts hanging out with Canaanite Jim and he starts inviting him over to his cooler-looking house and they go fishing with their father-in-law on a cooler-looking boat and then they go tr try out the first church of Baal for a little bit and it's way more fun. And it says in Judges chapter 2 that the people of Israel, their hearts went after these other gods in the end it says they totally abandoned the lord so god yahweh he loves his people and he doesn't want to let them go and he wants to bring them back to him and so the book of judges it's all about this cycle of the Jewish people rejecting God. I'm going to leave you and pursue Baal and Asherah and any other God. And they pursue them for a while. And then God says, I'm going to bring you back. And to bring you back, I've got to discipline you. And so to discipline the Jewish people, he would bring in another tribe who would oppress the people. And after a while, it could have been a year, two years, 11 years, a long time sometimes. Eventually, the people would be like, this is too much. And they would cry out to God for help. And then God would raise up a deliverer called a judge. And that's why this is called the book of Judges, right? He would raise up a deliverer, a judge, who would push out that other tribe who would stop the tribe that was oppressing Israel and lead them in revolt and yay we've defeated that other tribe and then the the people of Israel would worship Yahweh once again but then give it a couple years their hearts would be turned back again to these other gods and so the cycle is repeated throughout the book of judges they they reject god they're disciplined by god by oppression through another tribe and then and then they cry out to god for help and then god sends a judge who delivers them on well, judges chapter 6 the people 
the Israelite people have been at peace for 40 years under the judgeships of Deborah and Barak. For 40 years they'd had peace. But the people of Israel again began to pursue Baal, began to turn their hearts towards these other gods. So God brought in the people called the Midianites to oppress them and to take away their food. And it says in verse 7, when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, they cried out to them because in verse 6, they were brought so low. They couldn't handle it anymore. And they cried out to their one true God, Yahweh, please help us. Well, things had gotten so bad that the people of Israel, I think, didn't even realize why the Midianites were oppressing them. And so God sends a prophet. There's only two prophets mentioned in the book of Judges. One is Deborah, and the other one is this nameless prophet. Well, he sends them a prophet in verse 8, and he says to them, You've forgotten why you're here. He says, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. I, and he recounts all these wonderful things. I led you out of Egypt. I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians. And, he's, and I am the Lord your God. And the prophet reminds them, You shall not fear other gods but me only. But, the prophet says, You, Israel, have not obeyed my God's voice. You have not obeyed my voice. And the prophet speaks directly to God, reminding them, this is why you're being oppressed, because you have abandoned your one true God to go after these other gods. And the prophet leaves. The people are reminded, man, we have failed. What's going to happen? Please, Lord, help us. So then there's Gideon in this wine press. Bam, bam, bam. And he picks up the stalks of it. This is hard work threshing wheat just by hand. And maybe he had a lot of stalks of wheat. He sits down on the edge of the wine press. Those Midianites aren't around. But then he notices off. There is somebody watching him. There's somebody over there watching him underneath that terebinth tree. See, the terebinth tree in Jewish custom, that's where some great spiritual battle might have been won or some great encounter. Usually when you would encounter God was by this terebinth tree, and so they would plant one to commemorate that. And so this tree was there for to remind the Jewish people of some great spiritual encounter and Gideon looks over and he sees just somebody sitting there. And he's thinking, he's probably been watching me the whole time. So he wonders, is it a Midianite? Am I in trouble? I don't know. And he walks over there and he gets closer and closer. He stands in front of him. And then the man says, the Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. Gideon looks at him and he's thinking, mighty man of valor? I've just been spending the last 
hour, two hours threshing wheat in a wine press. I'm hiding. I'm I'm mighty man of chicken, not mighty man of valor, probably Gideon's thinking. But then he, he thinks about that first part. The Lord is with you. And Gideon says, he's not with us. Please, he says, my Lord, in verse 13. Please, if, if the Lord is with us, why is all this bad stuff happening to us? I've heard about the great stories of Moses. I've heard about all the great things that Yahweh has done for us in the past and that my, my father used to tell us about. But now, maybe he pauses and looks down at the ground. Now the Lord's just forsaken us. Yahweh's just abandoned us. It says in verse 14, but the Lord turned to him. See, I think it's interesting. This traveler isn't just some man who's sitting around. No, this is Yahweh. It says verse 14, and the Lord turned to him. Now earlier in verse 11, it says, now the angel of the Lord came. This is the same person. See, quite often when you read about the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament, that's God. It's not some cool angel who defeats everybody. No, that's God. The big theological word for that is a theophany. God in human angelic form showing up to talk to Gideon. But I think Gideon has no clue that he's talking to Yahweh. So Gideon says, the Lord's abandoned us. The Lord, he's saying the Lord has abandoned us to the Lord himself. And I wonder if the Lord stands up, brushes Gideon all the weed off of him and says, go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. And then he says this, do not I send you. I think Gideon steps back. I? We've just been talking about the Lord. Then he says, don't I send you? Is he saying he, he's the Lord? But it can't be me. He, he, he can't be sending me and he, he talks about this might of mine. Please, you can't send me. I am, I'm the weakest in the clan of Manasseh. I, I can't go. He goes, basically, he says, I'm the youngest in my father's house. And then I'm in one of the weakest clans of Israel and one of the weakest tribes. I'm in this clan that's in this weak tribe called Manasseh. We're not Judah. You know, we're not Reuben. We're not some cool tribe. I'm in this weak tribe called Manasseh. And then my clan's one of the smallest tribes in that. And then I'm like the youngest. Are you kidding me? What might are you talking about? Then it says in verse 16, God says, but I will be with you. Now remember earlier he says, I want to send you in the strength of the Lord that I am sending you. And then verse 16, he says, I will be with you. I don't care how weak you are, how fearful you are. If I'm sending you, if God Almighty is sending you, then you can go in strength and you can go in power. Not because of your own strength, Gideon, 
but because I'm Yahweh, I'm mighty, I'm powerful. Are you going to trust me? Gideon's got some major doubts here. He's got to be a little more confident. I mean, here he is talking to God, but Gideon's like, oh, I don't know. And he says, all right, all right, all right, all right. If I found favor, if, if you're truly God, please show me a sign. Don't depart from me. In fact, please don't depart from me until I come and, and bring out my present and set it before you. Just, just stay here, please. Will you stay here? I, I want to bring a present to you. Will you stay and take my present? And the Lord says, I'll stay till you return. So Gideon runs back home. He goes to his house. And again, he gets a goat. It says he prepares a young goat. You know what it means to prepare? He had to, first of all, kill the goat. He then had to slit it open. He then had to skin it. He then had to cook it with all the herbs and spices to make it nice and tasty. And then he took some unleavened cakes and he made it himself again, like little pancakes he made. He had to take some water and, you know, take some of the flour and pat it all together. And so he made unleavened cakes and he had this goat. How long would this take? You know, at least an hour to prepare the goat. And while he's doing that, he's working on his cake. I mean, this is exhausting work. And maybe two hours later, he finally says, puts the meat in the basket. Then he has some broth that he wants to pour all over the meat and the unleavened cakes. And mmm, that sounds pretty good. Sort of like a good old roast. And he puts it all in a basket and he brings it. He brings it back. I wonder if he starts to run because he's wondering, is, is the angel of the Lord still there? Is, is God still there? And he turns the corner and, whew, he's still there. He's still under the tree. And he goes up to him and you can imagine, if this is God, he says he's Lord, but he just looks like your average guy. Well, he's still here. This is good. And so he lays the meat down at his feet and the unleavened bread. The Lord says, all right, I want you to take the meat and those cakes, put them on this rock right here. And he might have tapped a rock with a cane. And so he takes the meat. He might have cut up the goat into slices of meat and he puts it there on top of the rock. And then he puts the cake on top of the rock. And, and then God says, I want you then to pour this broth over all of it. So he pours his broth over all that. It begins to soak in the meat and soak in the unleavened bread. Mmm, it looks good. Then it says, the angel of the Lord takes his staff and he touches the meat and he touches the rock. And then all of a sudden, fire springs up from the rock. This flame comes up, this fire comes up, and it consumes the meat and the cakes, and whoosh, and then all of a sudden Gideon's like, wow, and he looks, and right before him, the angel of the Lord, boop, disappears. And then Gideon realizes, I have seen the Lord. I've seen God himself. Gideon, I can imagine, drops to his knees and he, and he yells out, Alas, O Lord, for now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face and he thinks he's going to die. It's really interesting. Whenever people encounter God Almighty, 
their response isn't joy and love. No, in the Old Testament, when they experienced God Almighty, they drop to their knees in dread fear. They think they're going to die every single time. Why? Because they realize their sin and they realize the mighty majesty of God. They think, I'm done for. And here Gideon is the same way. But then he hears the Lord say, hey, Gideon, don't worry. Peace be to you. Do not fear. For you shall not die. Don't be afraid. You're not going to die. So Gideon's like, I guess that really was God. God wants me to go against the Midianites. Gideon begins to build an altar there for the Lord. And when it was written, it says the name of that altar is the Lord is peace. And when the book of Judges was written, that altar was still standing. So he builds this altar, the honor of God. He realizes that God wants him, fearful Gideon, in the smallest clan, in one of the weakest tribes of Israel, the youngest of his family. He wants him to go against the Midianites. Later on, the Lord says to him in verse 25 that he wants him to begin this whole battle by tearing down his own dad's altar to Baal. That's where I want you to start, Gideon. I want you to start right at home. And I want you to tear down your own dad's altar to Baal. Will you do it, Gideon? Will you go in my might, tear down your dad's altar to Baal? Will you do it, Gideon? Well, join us next week as we find out what happens to Gideon. We find out how God can truly use a man, even a man as scared as Gideon. If you are sold out to God, if you are willing to follow him, if you are willing to trust him despite your own fears... God can do amazing things in your life. Baldhead Bible Podcast is created by Dr. John Katzian. Music composed and performed by Elijah Katzian. Edited by Lincoln Katzian. If you would like to listen to more of Baldhead Bible Podcast, please subscribe. New episodes added every week.